Good evening. I want to welcome everybody to our Cattle Edge Producer Education Webinar. I am Benita Lettier, the Director of Producer Ed with the Nebraska Cattlemen. We are really excited tonight to be partnering with Ward Laboratories on our webinar. The Nebraska Cattlemen works for cattlemen on issues affecting them. Some of the areas you'll find us working on are legislative affairs, regulatory, producer education programs. We have several affiliates across Nebraska that host meetings for our members. Uh, several of them are on hold right now because of COVID, but make sure you watch our website for our calendar on our website for upcoming events. If you wanna know what we're busy doing, uh, members, please watch for our biweekly newsletter uh, catch us on Facebook and Twitter, and also our week midweek update that comes out tomorrow around noon. If you are not a Nebraska Cattlemen member, we hope that you will consider investing in our organization. We need your help to keep us growing strong. A couple things um, on our webinar tonight for housekeeping. If you have questions for our speakers, at any time, you can type your question in the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. We will be answering questions at the end of our presentations. If you have any problems, you can text me at 402-450-0223. That's 402-450-0223. We are recording our webinar tonight, so watch for it on our website sometime tomorrow. You can share that with your friends that might have missed it or go back and catch. Before I turn it over to Hannah Dorn to introduce our speakers, I want to let you know that the Nebraska Beef Scholars are hosting their Beef Summit by webinar this year. The second part of the webinar will be held tomorrow night at seven o'clock central. If you want more information on this, you can find that information on our NC website. Okay, Hannah, I will turn it over to you. All right, well, good evening, everyone. Thank you, Benita and Nebraska Cattlemen for organizing this and for having us on. Um, and we appreciate all of you taking time out of your busy day to tune in. Um, we've got some exciting work to share with you that we've been compi compiling and we hope that you'll find it useful. Um, so like Benita said, I'm Hannah Dorn. I'm an agronomist and marketing manager at Ward Laboratories in Kearney, Nebraska. Uh, Ward Laboratories is a full service agricultural testing laboratory where we analyze soil, feed, forage, plant, water, manure, and fertilizer samples. We aim to provide information needed to make critical production decisions. We participate in a number of proficiency programs and we have a full staff of trained and educated personnel who help ensure accurate, precise, and reliable test results. Our goal is to fully serve farmers and ranchers, and we accomplish through consultation by professional staff before, during, and after testing. Our speakers today are Terry Bittner and Rebecca Kern. Um, we'll start with Becca. They both have quite extensive resumes. Um, Rebecca is Ward Laboratories Animal Scientist and is, is a member of the American Registry of Professional Animal Scientists. As Ward Laboratories Animal Scientist, she reviews feed and forage data for quality and accuracy, promotes our feed testing department, and consults with livestock producers, among other duties. 
Rebecca earned her Master of Animal Nutrition at the University of Wyoming, working on a collaborative project with the U.S. Meat Animal Research Center, studying beef feed efficiency. Upon completion of the master's program, she worked at U.S. Mark for two years as a research technician and has experience working with beef cattle and swine. Her work has been published in peer-reviewed journals, such as Animal Genetics and also the Beef Report. Uh, currently, she is serving on the NIR's Forage and Feed Testing Consortium Board. Rebecca chairs the consortium's Accuracy and Quality Committee and is highly involved in the Membership and Education Committee. Being passionate about pro producer outreach and education, she presents at producer meetings, collaborates with state extensions, writes editorials for Progressive Forage, and during her four years at Ward Laboratories has written over 50 blog posts addressing common producer questions. Terry Bittner serves as an account development and agronomy support manager at the lab. He graduated from the University of Nebraska Kearney with a degree in business administration. He farmed for 34 years in the Platte Valley near Kearney, where he raised corn, soybeans, alfalfa, small grains, and forages. He was also a cow-calf producer, where he raised purebred Simmental seed stock and a commercial herd. While farming, Terry sold seed for nearly 34 years. He joined Ward Laboratories in 2017. With that, I will turn it over to Terry and Becca. Um, again, if you have any questions, please feel free to use the Q&A box and we'll get to them at the end. All right, well, thank you, Hannah, for the introduction and thank you to Nebraska Cattlemen for hosting us uh, this evening. And I was a longtime member um, when I was a producer of Nebraska Cattlemen and, uh, and was even a past president of our local affiliate um, in the early 1990s. So I really appreciate, uh, you know, what Nebraska Cattlemen brings for their membership and, and all the hard work they do. Um, about a little over a year ago, um, I, I wrote a blog post um, titled The Downside of Baled Crop Residue. And then about December or January um, of this year, I wrote another one because traveling around um, as I do as account development manager for wards, uh, you know, I just saw some things that just prompted me to kind of expand on, on the first blog post. And so anyway, um, we'll kind of go through the, the talk or uh, the topics that I talked about in, in those two articles combined. So the first thing we want to look at is crop residue management. And then, you know, we want to take a look, uh, and think about the erosion risk uh, when you take the cover off of the soil and, and what that can do for your, for your uh, crop fields. And then also we're gonna look at the soil health impacts um, of removing the residue. And then finally at the end, we'll take a look at the hard economics um, involved when you remove the residue. So the first thing we'll talk about is water or erosion. And, water erosion and of course you can see here in the picture i mean bare soil nothing really on top of it to protect it one of the five principles of soil health is keep armor on the soil and you know several reasons for that but one obviously is to protect it from from hard rainfall that when that happens the raindrops will break up the sand silts and clays and then if there's any slope at all on the field those are going to move down and when I was traveling around, um, uh, see in March or April of 2019, after the bomb cyclone that we had across the state here, 
Um, I was kind of in north central Nebraska where it was, the topography was fairly rough, you know, and hilly. And as I was driving down the highway, I looked and there was a pivot um, that was soybean stubble and didn't look like there was a lot of residue cover on it. And it had a pretty good draw um, through the middle of it between a quarter and a half mile long. And as I looked out across there, all that rain that we had in that event, it had washed uh, a gully essentially anywhere from two to four foot wide and two to four foot deep and maybe even six foot in spots. And of course, you know, all the topsoil essentially ended up down in the corner of the field where the culvert was going, going under the road and just a big blob of, of soil that probably didn't dry out until July. I mean, so anyway, that's a huge reason why we want to keep armor on the soil. Yeah, as I traveled a little further down that road, I actually saw a corn stalk field. There was cows actually grazing out on the stalks at that time. And it had similar topography with a, with a draw through the middle. And in the bottom, hardly any soil um, had washed out of the field at all. So, you know, just keep that in mind that we always want to protect the soil as best we can. And then, of course, wind erosion. And, you know, you can drive around in the spring in Nebraska. It's pretty easy to see because we always have wind. And you can tell the difference between the fields that have been worked or that have, have had the residue removed very heavily um, versus the ones that have adequate cover on because, you know, you just you can just see the dirt blowing and you can see it as you move from one mile to the next. And, you know, and then we talk about the long-term implications. I mean, scientists generally agree that it takes about 100 years to form one inch of, of new soil. And so if you think about the first uh, field I was talking about, you know, how many hundreds of years of soil is down in the corner of the field, not even going to be able to produce, be produced on anymore. You know, I'm just kind of reemphasize. I mean, you can just drive around on a spring day with 30 mile an hour winds and you can see the difference between the covered and uncovered soil. And then the soil health impact. And the first thing I have here is windrow versus raking. There's two ways producers um, generally on corn residue will put it up. Um, some of them will take out a twin V rake and just go across the field and you know then make a windrow and then come behind with the baler. And then there's others um, that will use a flail stock shredder that's specifically designed to move everything out to one side and then create a windrow. And in this picture, you can see this was a field in my neighborhood a year ago, and I took it in early spring, but that's what um, was performed on this field was the, the windrowing with the stock shredder. And as you can see, there's very, very little residue between the rows. Essentially, all there is it left is the corn stalk on top of the row sticking up. So, you know, that soil is just open to the earlier things I talked about, you know, um, the water and wind erosion. And then, you know, also when you get that kind of, of uh, raindrops on that soil, like I said, breaks up the sand, silt, and clays, that essentially any soil aggregation um, that was in that soil is lost in the top few inches. And so, you know, it's always good to protect um, that soil from that raindrop. And I just looked at a study I had today, um, 
you know, and they talked about uncovered versus covered and, you know, the water holding capacity of it. Um, and, you know, it was dramatically more um, water holding capacity for the soil that has been covered over several years. So, and just like I said, you know, residue helps increase or organic matter in the soil. I mean, that's what the soil mic microbes use to build organic matter. And, you know, then also inorganic matter. And I think a lot of the people who grow crops, you know, understand what that is. There's generally um, a thousand pounds of nitrogen, 240 pounds of phosphorus, and about 140 pounds of sulfur in 1% organic matter. Um, so if you have a 2% organic matter in your soil, just think of what you have there in an organic capacity. And then, you know, talk a little bit about carbon and, you know, carbon's in the news and it's, you'll see it in social media and it's kind of been a hot topic um, in the last couple of three years, you know, CO2 in the atmosphere, um, global warming, you know, sequestering um, carbon in the soil um, to try to help you know, our climate and our environment. And uh, so, you know, essentially, I mean, if you're taking off the carbon in, and I won't go into great details on it, but um, we've came up with a value for carbon of $19.72 a ton. And I won't bore you with the formula on that. That is actually um, in that first blog article that I wrote, um, if you want to see how we broke that down. Um, but, you know, essentially there's about 640 pounds of carbon in a ton of, of corn residue. And, you know, and you can see here, I mean, carbon is critical um, for a lot of essential plant um, processes. And also, as, as you see here, it's a keystone for all soil, physical, chemical, and biological processes and properties also. So, you know, it's just... Uh, you know, it's just a healthy soil will improve the release of NP and, you know, and other nutrients, you know, resulting in increased fertilizer use efficiency. And so, you know, now we're going to take a look at um, the charts I put together with the assistance of Dr. Ray Ward when I wrote the first article. And I'll look over here, I'll kind of move you over to the right side, and we'll look at the nutrient removed per ton of, of corn residue. And as you can see, nitrogen it's 18 pounds um, and that's taken out with each ton. And I used the common fertilizers um, that we use, of course, with nitrogen, we used a 32% UAN at the time that, that um, and actually this was redone in August. So we valued that at $240 a ton. And so if you break that down, it comes out to 38 cents a pound. And then, so that, that amounts to $6.84 a ton. Phosphorus, um, you can go across there and look at that. Now, phosphorus, most of, the, most of that nutrient goes out in the kernel of corn um, as it leaves the field. So, you know, there isn't as much there, but it's still N, P, and K. They're the big three, and so, you know, we still have to account for it. And then look at potassium. And potassium, there's some in the kernel, but right at half is, remains in the crop residue. And so, you know, using an 0060, which is a common dry fertilizer, um, you know, we come up with 31 cents a pound or $9.30 a ton. So, you know, and then we go through the others, sulfur, of course, um, not as much. Then we drop down to magnesium. Now, um, magnesium, 
most soil tests, you, you look at your test and, you know, I've got a lot of magnesium in there. Now, not all soils in, in uh, Nebraska, you know, are abundant in magnesium. Some are deficient. And so, you know, but you think, you know, I've got plenty in my soil, but at some point, you've got to think if you keep removing the stocks every year, you know, at what point do I have to maybe come in with a product um, to correct that and, you know, and bring your soil test back up. As you can see, I mean, that's an expensive product, magnesium sulfate, and with even just 10% ma uh, magnesium in it, $7.49 a pound. So with 3.4 pounds, $25.47 a, a ton is removed. And then you have calcium, you know, and some soils in Nebraska are low pH. So, you know, you want to be conscious of the calcium you're removing because the more you remove, you're just going to drive your pH down more. And so when we total all these nutrients up, um, essentially $47.33 a ton is being removed. Um, then you've got your equipment costs and your time. And so I used UNL custom rates um, for a year ago for, and they had some for the shred windrow um, operation and then bailing those total $45 a ton, a ton. So you total those costs, $92.33. Then you look to the right and I've got a good friend that uh, procures all the the feedstuffs, the roughages for a large feedlot. And so I talked to him here in August and, and, and he said he can buy all the corn stalks at that time for $50 a ton. So if you put that against the $92.33, that's a loss of $42.33. And we haven't even added in the $19 or 17 some dollars um, value for carp. So, you know, then we move to soybean residue. Um, this changes a little bit, not much. Nitrogen and phosphorus are pretty close to the same and potassium essentially as corn stalks. But then we move down to sulfur. Um, sulfur is actually 35% higher in removal rate per ton than corn stalks. Magnesium at 7.8 is double um, what corn stalks is. And then calcium at 27 um, at, at ton, pounds a ton is three times as much as corn stalks. So, you know, so with the magnesium being expensive and being double corn, you look down at the bottom, $78.07 um, nutrient removal cost. Baling cost, I just put baling cost at $15, um, essentially because if you do, generally farmers will drop the straw spreader on their combine and just make a windrow at the back. So you really don't have any windrowing cost. So total cost of $93.07. Soybeans doubles the same cost as, or same value as corn, $50 a ton. So we're looking at $43.07 um, a ton loss with that. So, and then I also have one here for wheat. And wheat's a little different animal. You can see there's not as many nutrients um, per ton in wheat straw. And, you know, um, I think wheat straw, I don't have it on here, but it was selling for $85 a ton. Um, at the time, and you know, when we add out the total cost, $50.84. And as a former cattle producer and cow-calf uh, man, you know, I always love to have some straw around for bedding in the calving barn and everything. So I totally understand that, um, you know, but you know, it's still a good idea to be conscious about what you're removing and everything and, and, and all that. So, you know, in, in the end, I guess 
on mine, you know, you say it's financially prudent to consider all the facts and consequences for baling and harvesting and removing baled crop residue from your fields. And, you know, as a producer, I mean, we all, I had to make the same decisions you all have do. Um, you know, you gather the information, you weigh the facts, and then, and then you make a decision what you want to do. What I would do on my farm is not necessarily what would be the right thing for yours. And so, you know, and I totally understand the need for, for the, the crop residue um, for a low cost roughage um, in certain situations. And so, you know, we like the idea of grazing corn stalks and, you know, because um, what you're doing essentially there, every nutrient they're taking in, they're putting 80 to 90% of that right back on the field in the form of manure. So, you know, on the feed part, we'll move on then to, to Rebecca and she will talk about uh, some things to be aware of um, when feeding crop residues. Thank you, Terry. Very good information there, especially considering the economics across our entire enterprise and it's very timely and relevant. I was just reading in hand forage grower, um, Aaron Berger was quoted as saying, you know, that our state, we have a lot more corn stalks to feed than what we have cattle to feed. So that's, we have some good opportunities here. However, when I do attend, you know, producer meetings, um, especially when we hit the topic of grazing corn stalks and grazing crop residues and integrating our agricultural enterprises, um, some concerns are compaction. I always hear that. So I want to quickly address that. Nitrates is something that we always need to be aware of when we're dealing with forages that are being fertilized. And so, of course, crop residues are going to have some nitrate concerns. And then, of course, we always need to be, from a nutritional perspective, knowing what we're feeding our cattle so that we can make sure that we have a good supplementation strategy, whether we're baling them or grazing them, we need to know what's out there so that we can supplement accordingly. So what we've got here to address compaction is a study that was in soil and tillage research. And you can see on this chart, we've got conventional, we've got no-till, we've got different depths of soil, and then we've got the penetration resistance, which is an indicator, commonly accepted indicator of compaction, whether or not compaction is happening. We've got grazed, indicated by the triangle, or um, excuse me, ungrazed indicated by the triangle and grazed indicated by that hexagon. So what you can see here is that those triangles and hexagons are all intermingled. And so what's actually having more of an effect on the compaction is the water content of the soil when we go into deeper depths. And so what we can see is that managed properly, this doesn't mean, okay, we can turn them out and not worry about them. We still need to make sure we're pulling them off when it's sloppy, we don't wanna ruin our field, all of that stuff, absolutely. But we can graze our crop residues. Okay, so now addressing nitrate concerns. The number one cause for nitrates is going to be over fertilization and that's across all different forage types. And so when we're grazing crop residues, we might have an indication if we have over-fertilized. If we fertilized to meet a potential yield, and we didn't hit those goals, that's a good indicator that we have over-fertilized and we're definitely going to want to test for nitrates. I would also say that you should use soil testing 
to determine how you're amending your fields. And that's gonna also help you keep your nitrate issues low if you do plan to bale your crop residues or to graze them. But if you're using them as a feed, you want to make sure that you're fertilizing appropriately so that that plant can take up that nitrogen and actually get it converted to protein so that we won't have nitrates issues. Furthermore, we need to consider how nitrates are gonna be changing as they're out there, if they're grazing, they're at the beginning, they're gonna be at a lower risk for nitrate issues because there's less nitrates in the leaves and that's what they're mostly gonna be selecting. Then once we get into the stemmy stocky portions of the feed, they're going to be, you know, getting, getting higher levels of nitrates that we need to know if we should be concerned, if we need to off early, that's something that we're gonna to need to test for and we're gonna to need to know. So what we've got here, we've got our nitrate guide. This is what we give you guys to guide you after you've tested your nitrates. If you've bailed your forage, you're going to have the ability to mix accordingly. If you're grazing your forage, it might be an indicator that, you know, if you take a composite sample and it comes back high in nitrates, okay, now I need to split that out and see at what point do I need to pull them off? or maybe I need to be supplementing them with more hay if they're right at that 1400 mark for nitrates, nitrogen. So what I've got here, we're gonna now address the meeting nutrient requirements of those animals piece. And so this is actually data from University of Nebraska Extension, Raspi, Drunowski, Stalker, and so they just took and analyzed the nutrients available in different parts of some of these crop residues. And so you can see, obviously, corn grain has a range for protein between nine and a half and 11. The leaf has a range for protein. The husk has a range for protein. Everything has a range. And so, of course, not only are each component out there variable, but how much of each component is available and how are they able to select for those things. And so it's, it's a little bit of a difficult task to sample your fields, but you need to do your best you can to imitate what those cattle are consuming so that you can have a good idea of how they need to be supplemented. So just to drive this home and add a little bit more to it. So if we sampled up here at day zero, what you have here, you've got your in vitro dry matter digestibility, which is highly correlated with total digestible nutrients. So if this is decreasing your total digestible nutrients or your energy requirement may or may not be getting met. And so when we're starting at day zero and we've tested, okay, it's meeting their requirements. We don't need to supplement them. Great. And as we digress, once we hit about day 30, we know we're losing, you know, some of those nutrients that were in there. We're getting more fibrous portions of the plant left out on the field as they've chosen some of those other portions to eat. And so we might need to be uh, supplementing them a little bit differently the longer that we're leaving them out there on the field. And so here we've got, it's okay, you can pop that up. Here we've got an example. We've got our corn stalks that were tested at the first 30 days and the second 30 days. And we did use, these are numbers that came off corn stock reports. So we have seen corn stalks that test at seven, 
56% crude protein and 56% TDN. We're going to supplement everything with dry distillers and be consistent across the board. So if we are looking at this for the first 30 days, okay, we're going to put them out there. They don't really need supplementation, especially because if it tests that, it's going to meet their nutrient requirements. Excuse me, I got ahead of myself. We're talking about um, 30 days for early gestating, 1,200 pound beef cow. Her requirements are fairly low. Um, so they're meeting their requirements. So we don't need any supplementation at that point. The next second 30 days, they've selected all the good stuff off that field. All they've got is that fibrous part, just like thinking back to the previous slide with that chart. And so we are going to need to be supplementing. And if we're doing it precisely, if we're precision agriculture minded, it's gonna be three pounds per head per day. And if we use the book values, we're just gonna go ahead and give her two pounds per head per day across the board. And we're going to be leave, giving her more protein than she needs for the first 30 days, but then she's going to be deficient for the second 30 days. And you can see that in this particular scenario, that's giving her more food than what she needs in the beginning, more supplements than what she needs in the beginning. And um, so by testing, you are going to pay for the test just in the extra supplemental feed costs, but it's basically, it's a wash. However, we are able to build a supplementation strategy that we know is meeting her needs. And there's no question. We aren't wondering why is she losing weight? We know she's doing well. She's going to keep her body condition up. And we'll touch on that more in, the, in a bit. So here we have just another example. Let's say we move to a different field. Let's say that this field was sampled after last weekend where a lot of those husks and leaves have just blown away and they're not available out there anymore. So now we actually need to be supplementing five or three pounds per head per day at the beginning to meet that protein and energy requirements because the corn stalks are very low, 4% crude protein, 50% TDN. And then the second 30 days, we even need to be supplementing more. And so there, in this case, we're actually paying more for our feed supplementation, but we're making sure our animals' nutrient requirements are met. They're not getting skinny, and they're going to be able to carry their calf to gestation. And so there, if we would have gone by the book value, it would have been 1% to 2% deficient across the whole 60 days. Which brings me, again, I said I'd speak about this later. So what are the unaccounted for costs when we are assuming things based on book values and not precisely testing our feed and supplementing accordingly? Well, first of all, if we're not testing our nitrates, we're assuming, oh, must be low nitrates. Well, if it's marginal, we might lose a few calves to abortion because they might not be doing the best they can to forage and pick that low nitrate portions. And so what's that cost to you? Secondly, if we're not meeting their protein requirements, how is that affecting their production performance? Are they able to carry that tech calf to full term and support that calf and have a healthy calf and then follow subsequently milk production, all of these things. 
Furthermore, if they're getting skinny and they don't have enough protein, how is that impacting their immune function and their ability to create antibodies and just have that proper um, reaction when it comes, when they come into contact with something infectious that's opportunistic? You know, Ward Laboratories has been hosting a webinar series. We had Dr. Brian Vanderlei from the Great Plains Veterinary Education Center come and these are the kinds of things you need to be thinking about. He specifically mentioned that, you know, their protein and their energy, it's gonna be very important to make sure those are met, so that when you do come into a wreck, like a lot of a lot of snow, if they're at poor body condition scores, you're gonna come into a wreck. If they have had their nutrients be met, they're at a good body condition score, you're not gonna have a wreck when you come across you know, a weather event or an infectious agent that's opp opportunistic. So those are all things to be considering as you think about whether you should or shouldn't be testing those nutrients. Furthermore, um, the cost of excess supplementation. Now, a lot of times feed testing, they're going to sit claim. If you test your feed, you can save money on your feed supplements. That's not always going to be the case. That wasn't the case necessarily in our examples today. So, you know, it might save you, it might not. Depends where that book value is relative to the actual laboratory result. At the end of the day though, you're saving on those production costs that may go unaccounted for into your nutrition program. Okay, so just a few more things to consider if you are putting them out on soybeans or if you are feeding baled soybeans and there's still going to be bits and pieces of those beans left in there. Do not supplement a lick tub containing non-protein nitrogen. You're going to have ammonia poisoning. Also, we cannot overlook the importance of mineral supplementation, especially if you're feeding a distiller's co-product. You're going to want to be very careful with what kind of mineral supplementation you're choosing. Are you choosing, um, you know, a high sulfur mineral? You're going to likely have some polyencephalomalacia issues, some brainer cows. You know, phosphorus is another one to be concerned about. We also need to make sure that we're meeting our micronutrient requirements. With immune function, copper, zinc, manganese, and selenium are all notoriously low in these crop residues and many forages. So we need to make sure we're choosing a supplement that's going to meet those requirements for our animals. So one of the programs we're involved with, with South Dakota State University, they had a speaker, Dr. Jeffrey Hall out of Utah State University come and speak with some producers about minerals and how it can affect their herd. And he, he claimed from his experience, which he's got a lot, um, toxicologist, of course, that a mild deficiency can increase your open rates two to four percent and severe can increase those open rates by five to fifteen percent. He said usually when people are to the point where they're looking at their minerals to see if that's causing these types of issues once they've you know eliminated some of those infectious disease options it's it's too late and it's going to take them a long time to, to, to get back to where they need to be so all right. Well, thanks, Rebecca. And I guess just some takeaways from our joint presentation here. Um, you know, the first one, I mean, you, you've got to kind of think about uh, the neg negative soil health implications of, of removing the crop residue 
um, versus like we have here, the soil building aspects of integrating cattle um, back onto the field. And then, you know, the cost, like I showed in the charts of baling the residues and, you know, and what the nutrients are valued at, you know, it, it's something you need to consider. Um, you know, I guess I, I think uh, a little bit, you know, we soil test and, and you know, recommend um, based on what was taken off on the grain to put back on the soil to, you know, have a profitable crop the next year. But if you're taking the nutrients off um, in the form of the residue, you know, do you, do you need to factor in that value too? And that, you know, the pounds of nutrient um, taken off per acre. And then when grazing crop residues, analyze forages to develop a supplementation plan that'll meet the nutrient requirements and mitigate the um, nitrate toxicity, toxicity risks. So with that, that concludes our part of the program and Rebecca and I and Hannah would like to thank you. And um, here's Rebecca's my contact information. And uh, you know, you can reach us with any questions at our email addresses or by calling the phone number. And then also um, underneath Rebecca, you'll see the labforlivestock.com. That is where uh, the two blogs that I uh, mentioned earlier are at and as many as well as Many, um, like was mentioned, you know, that Rebecca has wrote, and we have several others um, from our varied professional staff, um, you know, on different subjects too. So something that definitely worth, be worth taking a look at. So I guess at this point, um, you know, um, we could open it up for questions and um, if anybody has any. All right, a few questions did roll in and as you think of more, please feel free to put them in the question and answer box at the bottom. Um, so first question, if your cows are in good pot body condition, i.e. body score six plus, do you still need to supplement the protein the last 30 to 60 days on stocks prior to calving? So I would say, you know, it's all about your goals. Um, body scores between six and five, you know, you, you don't want them to lose weight to where they're at a four or a three. So you need to feed them to maintain. And so, you know, I, I would want them to maintain. I would work with my nutritionist um, and, and figure out what's going to be our best plan. If, if there's enough nutrients out there that they are going to maintain, or you don't mind having them slip down to a five, five and a half, then you probably don't need to, you know, depending on what's available out there for them. All right. Um, next question, how do producers mimic what the cattle will graze? How do you select and predict the parts and the amounts? Yeah, so that's a very tough, tough thing to do. So what we know is that no one can go out there and actually choose a diet that's as good as what they're going to choose. So what we have to do is we have to watch them. We have to observe them. So, you know, whenever they're out there, be observing them and then go out there and try to choose what they've chosen as closely as you can. It's, it's a difficult thing to do. It's very tricky. I think it is probably easier even in a pasture situation than it is, you know, in, in the corn stalks. I think it is going to be difficult, but just know, know that you're sampling, you're probably sampling a little bit less quality than what they're getting. If you supplement accordingly and then monitor their body condition score, it's a little bit of an art and a science at the same time. You know they're going to choose the good, you know, good 
stuff, you know, the, the leaves and the husks first, and then the stalks second, and of course the corn grain. And that's something too, um, you know, we did use the corn grazing stock calculator from, put out by UNL. And so that's a very good tool to help you get started. Becca and I have a little bit of experience sampling pastures and, and guessing what the animals are eating. And I think we actually have a YouTube video um, if you want to see that. So maybe we should make one for corn stalks too. All right, next question. Um, have you completed any studies on removing crop residue using it in bed pack confinement barns in the following year after removal of the crop residue, spreading the residue manure from the bed pack back on a field? No, I haven't seen any, uh, any studies on that. And of course we, we haven't done any. Um, I guess that's one thing I didn't talk about really was, you know, if you take it off and you feed it, um, you know, or you bed with it, obviously um, you've got, you know, bedding that is soaked with urine and then manure and you know and then in a feedlot situation or backgrounding i mean you've got the manure ideally if you do remove the residue um that's what we'd like to see you do is take it back and put it where you did take the stocks off now i know sometimes logistically that's hard um but that's probably the best idea um because then you know just like i said instead of grazing the corn stalks, at least you're getting the nutrients, you know, back out onto the field um, and using them and not having to worry about replacing those nutrients with a commercial product. I'll just add to that. Um, Rick, I think his last name is pronounced Kelsch with UNL, um, has done a lot of different studies on manure and manure management. I'm not sure if he would have any research that would answer your question. Um, but they've got a whole manure management section on their website, so that might be worth a Google to see if he's got anything on that. Okay, should you test your hay to know if you need to supplement? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yep, so, you know, hay and forages, and we've got, we've got a lot of webinars and a lot of materials out there that show, you know, hay is so variable. You need to know what their requirements are and what you're feeding. And along with that, you do need to do a visual um, evaluation of your hay. And you also need to know some of the physical characteristics of your hay. You know, um, unfortunately, I still see coming through the lab a lot of, I just want protein and ADF and I just want to know my, my TDN and my protein and that's it. But knowing, you know, your NDF, your nutrient detergent, fiber and digestibility of that those things can also help you to know if gut feels going to be a problem and so getting a I, I really promote the near infrared spectroscopy and like Hannah said in the intro we are consortium members of that it's it's a, a very affordable test for the value that you get out of the answers and I'm always willing to walk producers through their own reports and figure out what that's telling them so absolutely All right, next one. How does a snow event, let's say six inches, impact the nutritional value of grazing corn stalks? Yeah, so actually I have not read anything really about this, but you know, it's if it's covered in snow and ice, of course they can't get to it. So 
Um, you just got to figure that of what, what can or can't they get, get down to, um, you know, and so part of that's going to be on you to be observing your fields and seeing what's, what's available to them. And I know, you know, just like windrow grazing, you know, sometimes those windrows get covered up um, and you might, may have to be bringing some extra forage out there or some extra supplement depending on what is out there. So testing is good. Of course, we want you to test you know, specifically the nitrates when we're talking about crop residues that are in the field. Once they're baled, treat them like hay, of course. Um, but it is, it is partly, you know, it's art and a science. You have to be able to observe and observe how they're consuming those things. Perfect. Uh, what is the best strategy to convince grain farmers to allow a second party to bring cows in and graze their ground? Some around southeast Nebraska seem to be hesitant. Terry, any experiences with that? Well, um, you know, I know some, some, I don't know, the grain that are, the farmers that are purely grain farmers, there's varying different opinions of, of why they don't run cattle on there. Some of them want to do field work in the fall, um, things like that. Um, one of the things Rebecca talked about first on in her presentation was compaction. That's a concern. I don't know. I mean, you know, in my experience, I never had a lot of problem with it. I think if you manage things correctly, yes, up around the pivot point where you usually water, sure, you're going to have a little bit there. But, you know, that's a small sacrifice for the benefits you're going to get. Um, you know, and I guess, uh, you know, offer higher rent. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's a hard thing because everybody has different opinions. Um, yes, I would love to see um, more grain farmers, you know, rent their stocks out. I mean, just like we talked about. Um, and for the biggest reason, nutrient cycling. So, you know, um, wish I could help more, but that is oh, kind of toughy. Didn't we just post something on our Facebook? There is, I think UNL has either a grazing, a stocks exchange or else it's cover crop exchange, but maybe try, instead of trying to convince someone, try to find someone who's already willing. Yes, I think it's um, crop residue exchange or something like that. If you Google mm -hmm. yeah. um one other thing I know um, just from some of my own friends and, and how they did it, um, you know, there's maybe someone new coming back to the operation that needs, you know, a little extra source of income. You might reach out to a younger farmer or something like that. They may be a little more, more open to that idea also. Mm -hmm. All right. And another question came in. This is a good one. How long of a process is it to test your hay? Two day turnaround time, whether it's feed or whether it's an IR at this point, um, we've got two day turnaround time. So from the day it enters our lab, you should expect results in two days around five o'clock or the next morning, you know, um, depending on when we get, um, oh, thank you, Jay Parsons. That's, that's what we're looking for. Yeah. Um, but anyways, yeah, depending on when we get um, to reviewing that analysis, but typically two days. Perfect. And it's also worth noting, we've got some sample supplies we'd be happy to send out. Um, we've got some mailers that you can ship through the post office and you'll get free shipping. So 
if you're not in the neighborhood and dropping off samples isn't an option, that's also a great, great way to cut back on some costs too. Okay, I'll put in the chat box that website for the residue exchange. Um, otherwise, it looks like that is all of the questions unless there's any last minute thoughts. Oh, here's a new one. Oh, good one. What percent? Oh gosh. <laughs> what percentage of corn stock residue samples are high in nitrogen? Okay, I believe that this was addressed in the beef report. We gave our data to Mary Janowski. We don't typically, let's see. We don't typically compile our information like that, but I believe it was in there. So let me look. Not sure if corn stocks was actually a category here. No, it wasn't. So we don't compile our data like that, but what I would say is that it's very variable and, you know, sometimes things that you think are going to be high in nitrates aren't, you know, like I was talking about the guy who over fertilized and he just called, he asked, should I, you know, he fertilized, he didn't get the yields that he was expecting, wanted to turn cattle out, sent in his nitrate test and it actually came back low. And then there's other situations where like, I know it's not going to be a problem, but I'm going to send in a sample anyways, comes back high. So nitrates are just tricky. And I would just say, you know, if there's any doubt in your mind, definitely test. Mm -hmm. Even if there's not a doubt in your mind, it's a, yeah. a <laughs> it's a very inexpensive test in comparison to a, a sick or a dead animal. Mm -hmm. All right, well, that wraps up the questions we have here. I think we're right about ending time. I think, Bonita, did you have a few more announcements before we finish? Well, I do want to thank um, Hannah, Terry, and Rebecca for a additional webinar this evening. Just want thank you for having us. Yes, I thank you very thank much. Everybody. And if you have any suggestions for other webinars, uh, please feel to reach out to the Nebraska Cattlemen and have a great evening, everybody. Thank you. Take care. Thank you.